Hi, everybody. This is Arathi from Human Chapters. I'll tell you a little bit about Human Chapters. Humans are living narratives with the past, present, and future. These narratives constitute of a number of chapters across a lifespan. The aim of these conversations is to highlight a chapter of the narrative and unpack its connections to other chapters. I don't care whether people are natural storytellers, but I truly do believe each one of us has a worthy story to share. In acknowledgement to country, we acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the lands on which we are. We pay respect to their tribal elders, past and present and emerging. We celebrate the continuing culture and we acknowledge the memory of the ancestors. Today, we have the honor of welcoming Elise um, and her chapter is Decodable Books Fixing the I Can't Read. Welcome, Elise. Hi, how are you? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I'm Elise Lovejoy, and I'm the founder of Express Readers and a teacher, former and current, um, just in different different fashions. Um, and yeah, I'm excited to be here. Beautiful. Um, tell us, Elise, where Express Readers, Decodable Books, where did your journey begin? Um, yeah, quite a good question. Yeah. I I was a balanced literacy teacher for a long time, and then I had this kind of awakening, and that's a different chapter, um, over a decade ago. And then when I moved to a new classroom, we had phonics, which was great, but there was a disconnect. And so I was still getting a lot of that I can't read, and really to understand that that is such a a detriment, profoundly detrimental thing for a child to feel and especially to say, because it means they felt it before. Mm. And how was I going to fix that? And so I had seen books that were decodable. They weren't very interesting. They weren't funny. There wasn't anything catching about them. It was like a worksheet that they were doing. And then there are all these very colorful books that were the leveled readers. And so how would I make my kids feel like that was what they were getting? They were getting a book, but they could actually read it. Um, there's just been this huge disconnect in understanding that if we're teaching a skill, we have to then use that skill as the required way to do something. Mm. Like I said to you earlier, you know, like if if we're teaching about math, then in order to solve a math problem, we give them one that has that math in it. You know, that seems really rational, right? <laughs> and I think there's been this very large discussion because I myself am very, I strongly believe that we need to keep the research base at the forefront and, and supporting all that we do. But there is not, a very large base for decodable books. There is, however, a very large base that tells us multiple things that go into it, such as the way strong readers read is by using sound spellings. Phonics gives our kids a foundational base to reading. Practice makes permanent. This is how many times it takes. 
all of those things lead us to the fact that it is not a leveled reader that our kids need to be practicing in. It is a book that contains the sound structures that they know. And I really think, unfortunately, we're not going to have the research base because there are so many control factors that would go into it. What series of books are you using? What's the program that you're using? And it's all of these like company elements. Which company are you using? And and then obviously there's all the regular ones like implementation and kids involved in the studies. And I think it's going to be very difficult, but I think we can't continue to lose kids or sacrifice their confidence and their drive to do it. So I would love to re go back to you said I can't read is a profoundly detrimental thing for a child to mm -hmm. see. Why? It's pervasive. It seeps into everything they do. If a child says they can't read, they have been made to feel that way. They have run up against that obstacle again and again. We see a lot of second graders, especially those that have been through the balanced literacy wheel that we have going. And they say, well, I can't read. It's because again and again and again, the material that is in front of them, they can't read. They mm -hmm. can't read the words on that page. And so we need to give them a taste of what it's like to be successful, to to have the opportunity to show what they know. We all like to use what we know. We all like to see success. We're all motivated by seeing that we can do something. If you are bashed again and again and again and made to feel that way to such the extent that you feel as though you cannot do something, you absolutely cannot do it. It's not, it's not a skill you have. Now, let's say that thing is reading. So I cannot do that in my math word problems. I cannot do that for any of the text that's around my classroom on the walls. I cannot do that for the writing activities that I have to. It affects everything. And so you think of, and because kids are the reason that most of us do this, when I actually think of a child feeling that way, it makes me feel teary, you know, makes me feel hot inside, like angry and, and sad and frustrated and all the things, because there is a solution to that. It's we're teaching them something. We need to give that something to them in what we're requiring of them. 100%. Um, and then you mentioned phonics, but you said that that phonics still didn't sort of at the mustard they weren't the words you used but yeah yeah well I mean I it's it's very surface level we can teach kids a bunch of math facts we can teach them a bunch of things to memorize teaching them disconnected phonics is the same as teaching them to memorize if they never use it or we never blend it into something or we never make it make meaning for them or help them to see what that meaning is, it's still just disconnected one-off symbols that have a sound, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and I know in math, we, we manipulate numbers and we use them in such ways because we don't want kids to just see the number two as a two. 
Mm-hmm. We want them to see it's two cookies and it's two items and you can hold them. And then we use it in something so that they can see what to do with two. We have to do the same thing with our, our letters and our sound structures and our our phonic spellings. I don't, I, it's frustrating sometimes how simple that sounds. <laughs> but I would then go, if we know a fair bit about the brain and how the brain learns or, you know, even taking us as adults, um, adult learners, learning something, if you make meaning or have a deeper connection to it, Mm -hmm. then you're likely to remember it for longer and you're likely to remember it well and build on that. But Mm -hmm. if it's something that's taught in isolation in a disjointed manner, it is very difficult for the brain to actually retrieve that information, put it into the long-term memory. Um, and therefore it appears as though, yes, you did teach the child, but it was like the child was never taught um, yeah. because of that idea of disjointedness or the lack of connect uh, connection um, in how that particular skill or sound structure or whatever it is you're trying to teach if it's not as explicit um yeah yeah well and, and and if I at the end of the day I've got my checklist and a child knows that as ah great but can they actually use that yeah when they're they come across a word that has ah in it are they saying that are they using it to decode that word I don't want them to just know that ah is ah I want them to be able to use it and there's so many other skills obviously that go into reading you know having the background knowledge to connect to the words, being able to make meaning of what you're reading and comprehending. But what I'm talking about is this missing link between teaching the foundations of reading and then being a reader. There is a piece in there. And for, I would almost say a lot of our kids, it's kind of a long piece. Um, because it continues. When you get something new, when you gain new skills, you still need to practice those. You don't just jump from a decodable reader into you know, a chapter book. Um, and I know that we want to rush back into what we're calling authentic text. I will say though, the like dirty little secret, when I look at some of these authentic texts, they're terrible. <laughs> Not all of them. But the books that are made for kids as early readers don't have a terrible amount of depth. It's not like, you know, we're we're giving them the sun and the moon in these early readers. And so why not be having them practice something in a story that's fun for them, that they're engaged in, but they're practicing the skills that we need them to in order to be a reader. I mean, I get all the criticisms that decodable books sometimes have stilted language and that the stories aren't interesting. I will, you know, argue with that fact because of course I've put the last decade of my life into making sure that the stories are fun and funny and engaging. But I don't think that the content learning for a child is going to come from a decodable. They're going to learn the how. We're going to teach them in a cute, fun engaging way how to be a reader so that then later they can read those content-based books 
Absolutely. And Elise, going back to 10, 10 years ago, is that <laughs> press readers started? Mm-hmm. Feels so that? crazy. <laughs> Makes me feel old, actually. <laughs> I know, but we can just say at least three years. Uh, I was very young when I started it. <laughs> um tell us tell us the journey of express readers like what was the thinking behind it where was the idea conceived and what has happened since then um 10 years is a long time to sort of go back well there's i mean there's the short cliff notes it it the fun part is it started in the class um it started in the classroom i did it in two years i followed my kids from kinder to first grade i was just writing quote unquote, silly little stories, but they were decodable. And then I started coming up with these fun characters and the kids would say, well, what happens to dog next? And then in my head, because I think this way, it was like, oh, I have a funny idea. So then the next book comes out and the kids got so engaged in it that it was almost like they stopped the frustration behind the mechanics of reading because there was something funny for them to apply it to. You know, it's playing the math game instead of always having to do a ditto sheet. Mm -hmm. It was fun for them. And when I did it, I don't think I understood the magnitude of how many teachers were actually looking for something like this, not necessarily districts. And it was why it was so frustrating at the start, because I would have teachers that would say, oh my gosh, this is what I'm looking for. This is what I want for my kids. I want them to be able to use what I'm teaching them. And I want it to be funny. I don't want it to be, you know, mindless. Um, and then, you know, the the struggle with the, the politics of it and the districts and the, well, we've bought this. So this is what we're using. Well, it's not working. So let's, you know, come up with some other solutions. Um and I'm in California and the road has been long and we're definitely not there yet, but, but there's some movement and there's a lot of people working really hard. Um, but I felt like I was yelling it and there was a little bit of time in there that I felt kind of crazy. Like, do, do I have this wrong? I was reading research papers singing, no, no, we need to practice and it needs to be sound spellings. And this is what that is, but you know, wasn't taking. And then a couple of years ago, that first, um, that first Emily Hanford article that I really caught on to, um, uh, too many words. Am I saying it wrong? Oh gosh. And I sent my books to Margaret Goldberg, who was in the story. And she wrote me back and said, this is great. This is what, you know, I'm, we're not involved in any way in business, but it was just having someone tell me, okay, mm-hmm. you know, and I had some really good support here. Well, then on top of that, I had some very cool connections, like one of the kids that learned how to read using my books in my class, her parents were printers. So they got me, you know, they said, do you want to, do you want to print these? I said, I don't I don't have the money, you know, like, so I figured that piece out, did my first print. And then um, another person who had a company that was going, their kids learned how to in another school. And we'd gone to high school and he says, Elise, is this you? Do you need help? How can I help you? So then I'm figuring out item numbers and all of these things as a teacher that I never would have been involved in. And a couple of school districts took it. They took all these books and the materials that went with them. 
when I left the classroom, I cried the first year because I was not ready to, but it didn't want to take away from my kiddos. I felt like my attention was stretched. And then I had kids and, you know, one thing happens and another thing happens. And so I was working nights and I was just working anytime I could. Um, and then when everything happened a couple of years ago, when people started understanding the importance, more people had the possibility of having these books in their classroom. And so we grew substantially and we are becoming a much bigger company. I want to say it that way but really trying to maintain what we believe. So where are we going to, you know, who are we going to bring with us? Mm. Who else can we raise up that needs to be in this space? Mm. Um, we need to make sure that if teachers are paying out of pocket, they always get a, a discount that will help them or, or even, you know, things, as my husband likes to say, they fall into the box when we ship something, he goes, I'll make sure some stuff falls into the box. I love that. I'm like, you're, that's really cute. <laughs> but because both of us were teachers, it's like this, this, we really want to build something that we're proud of, that our kids are proud of, that takes what these books and the, I'm still writing books. We have four more collections coming out in the next year, but they're getting the kids and the kids are having the chance to say, I can read. Absolutely. Um, Elise, if you were asked, and I'm not limiting it to five research points, but what are the big things you've taken into account that is directly as a result of the research that's been conducted in reading? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And, oh, okay. Sorry. Um, yeah, no. that's been directly, um, yeah, connected to the reading research that you have taken those pieces of information mm -hmm. and applied it to these books. What, what I've created. Yeah. Um, I'll say to start, I got very lucky because the first round of books that I created then actually were very much along with the research that I was finding. Ever since then, I think I've honed the skill more. Um, but I I do a lot of research. A lot of what I'm interested in is how the brain works. So the idea behind what pieces of our brain light up, you know, the fMRIs that we can do in the non-invasive neuroimaging. And I get very nerdy when I talk about it, but <laughs> what lights up while a child is learning. So it's this connection of a sound to symbol and then the strings of sound that we collect and then we have for easy retrieval. How that relates to what we're doing is by being very intentional with the words that we use in the books, always identifying what a child will not be able to decode, trying to keep that low because who wants to run into a hurdle every other word and ensuring that we're using the specific phonics that we want a child to be practicing to make permanent. Yeah. So see a lot of decodables out on the market and a lot of them will have, because of their scope and sequence, they 
collect large amounts of words that kids can't decode yet. Mm. I, I find that problematic mm. because we're overloading kids. I really want you to practice. I don't want to throw in subtraction a hundred times when you're working on addition. Stick to what, what we're doing. Um, I have, there's a lot of smaller sizes that, you know, we just, well, I don't want to say it that way. I don't want to say smaller size studies, but like if you've listened to Wiley Blevins talk about some of the studies he's done in classes and even just the enjoyment that kids have yeah. when they can read. So coming from a decodable where they have the skills to read it, that to me is impactful. Mm -hmm. Um I think that the research behind how many times kids need to practice something to make it permanent. Mm -hmm. You know, if we look at a gifted child being one to four times and a neurotypical child without any struggle being 14 to 40 times, um, or sorry, four to 14, that's a lot of times to have to use something in order to make it permanent. And then a child who's going to struggle 14 to 40 times. That's a lot. We should be giving them all of these places to be successful. That is so. And those repetitions are opportunities to repeat and practice um, the skill that they're learning to be able to then create that permanence. Um, yeah. I was listening to, I can't remember which um, podcast it was, but it was such an important point and I love how they stated it quite clearly is frequently you've taught a child something and when they can't do it independently it's literally the practice gap where yeah. they haven't had the um, amount of opportunities that they needed to be able yeah. to really just practice and almost automate that learning um mm. And that's what's happened. So given the number of repetitions, but that's that other key point is, so you said one, two, four, four, gifted, four, 44. Um, no, sorry, four to 14. I messed that up. Four to 14 for, you know, a child that's not going to struggle. 14 to 40 for a child that's going to struggle and 40 to 200 for a child that's dyslexic. Yeah. And it could be even more, right? Like depending yeah. Like this is we're talking about ideal conditions. And when mm -hmm. when are there those ideal conditions? Like the amount of complexities that come into play. And I think this is something that really perhaps needs to be considered is the opportunities to repeat and people feeling like it's almost drill work. But how important is that for the brain to keep going right. through that repetition? Um, and practice to give it that sort of singular focus before they can move on to something. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or to have it just be, you know, something you don't even think about. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like I think of like anything that I do, anything somebody has taught me how to do, like I don't do this anymore, but I used to crochet, you know, when you think about the first time you do it and you're really watching and you're really trying to figure it out and get stuck and you got knots and you got to redo it and whatever. By the end, I was looking up while I'm doing it. It just becomes this motion that I'm doing over and over again. It's because I've had enough practice. 
it's the same thing for kids. Absolutely. It okay. is. Yes. And their ability to, but not only are they just practicing that, right? If we look at their days, their days are packed with lots of other things they have to do. So to then create that space where they are doing the other things, but the, yeah. the is there and they have to remember it. And so our brains are absolutely incredible in what we can get right. to do. Um, my next question is how, when, when you do go to teachers um, or schools and you uh, they purchase these books, do they, in what capacity do they use it? Is it for their whole class? Is it for intervention? It depends on the teacher. It depends on their environment. It depends on their setup. It also depends on their knowledge of the research base and, and why this is all important. I have teachers who have the disjointed phonics band-aid yeah. and then throw these books into their classroom and they'll tell me, kids started picking them up and reading them. You know, it's like such a shock. Um, and so they'll be from that side of the spectrum to the other side where they've got it down. They know where their kids are, what skills those kids in their classrooms have, which where in the scope and sequence the kids are. Um, I think that the best possible use for decodable books is small group reading. The reason being you can really tailor it to the skills that kids have um, while still giving them the discussion and the reading practice and the multiple occasions to do so um, and as much personal attention as you can. But as teachers, that you know sometimes happens in a small group setting. And I think that that is probably the most beneficial way to be using them, but not everybody has that opportunity. I do have people that use it whole class, although I think that we really have to identify where our kids are yeah. to make it the most. That's right. That was going to be my next question is that small group, it's easier to identify where the students are at. But if it's in a whole class and you have 20 students, um, I don't know if you have any specific examples with teachers that you've worked with. How do they sort of cater for whole class um, so the one I don't have many teachers that do that mm -hmm. um, but the the way that we actually do it is we have black and white versions and we have the kids basically color them up uh, they highlight the sticky words or the words that are not decodable or irregular um, whatever the focus phonics is they circle that in a different color and so we're kind of helping them to figure to identify the patterns in those words and what sound spellings are different um, so that they can read it on their own. I really think that unless by some miracle, all your kids are on the same exact skill set, which doesn't happen, um, that whole class is beneficial, but it is not profoundly changing. Yes. As far as that goes. Cause this is, this is the application of the knowledge that you're giving kids. So you can do a phonics lesson, whole class, and, and all of the kids can have that. Some of them are, are being introduced to it. Some of them are, you know, working towards mastery. But when you're applying skills, it really does need to be done with like more personal facilitation. 
especially reading, we have to listen to our kids read. hundred percent. So then the next one, next question is what, what is the routine? So say I pick up a decodable book and Mm -hmm. maybe one um, student in front of me or a group. Mm -hmm. What do I start with and what sequence should I follow um, of that routine? Well, I think that there's like a very standard way that you can use a decodable. Yeah. It's that you sit down with a child if you know where they're at, what they know. So let's say a child knows CVC words and with our program, then next comes blends. So they sit down with a book. They maybe do a game that deals with blends. If they haven't been introduced to it yet, then they definitely need to have that very explicit lesson on whatever the blends are gonna be that you're gonna be using. We identify the words that are not going to sound the way that they are. I explain, those are tricky or those are sticky. Don't worry about that, I can help when we get there. This is what's irregular about them, but it's gonna take us a while to to remember that. And then, and then I, you know, we decode with them. We always read a decodable book multiple times. Yeah. Repeated reading helps with fluency. Um, confidence. If after a couple of times a child isn't able to do it, there's usually something more I need to be doing with their practice, you know, but that would just be the standard way would be a a lesson, something explicit having to do with the structures that are going to be in the book, identifying what the words are that we will not be able to sound out according to the scope and sequence or because of your regular patterns yeah. and then reading the book, sounding words out and, and how we talk to kids while they're doing it. So if they stumble on a word, sometimes you'll get a child that looks at you or says, well, what's that? Instead of saying, what do you think it is? Or, you know, what we used to say, it's okay. Let's, let's start again. Let's say the sounds. What, what sound is spelled here? And it's th- being very encouraging. This is the way that we do it kind of thing. And it, and it becomes habit for kids. That's, that's incredible. And I'd just like to sort of um, touch on the language that you use to help the child and instruct the child when doing um, or when reading the decodable books. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that let's sound it out first. Mm-hmm. Knowing what you know, what are you mindful of to not you? to not tell the child. Mm-hmm. Well, number one, I don't say, look at the picture. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, I don't want them guessing the word based on anything other than the structures that are in that word. Sometimes I'll use encouraging things about that specific child. I'll be like, oh, you know, these sounds, let's try again. Now, if a child cannot get them, I don't want them to stumble for too long. It's just like anything. We don't want them to fall for a very long time. So sometimes I will say the sounds and I want them to repeat it with me. And it's just because it's not always that a child doesn't know the sounds. Maybe they're having trouble retrieving them. Maybe it's because they didn't eat a good lunch and they're feeling frustrated just like we all do, or they didn't get enough sleep. And so they're not, they're just not pulling what they know quickly enough. So just to help them through it, I would say the sounds while pointing at the sound spellings and have them blend those sounds out loud to me, kind of give them a little push, but it's never, oh, you know this. Yeah. I might say, 
oh, this is a sound we worked on. You did a really great job with this sound. Or I will, I might say, you know, this sound, this sound is, and if I see that it's blank and then have them repeat it after. That's, and would you say those sort of blank moments or those sort of moments where the student is going past that productive struggle mark? Mm-hmm. Um, I use like, I know it as cognitive load. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you were able to explain a few things in that respect um, to look at for when a child does have high cognitive load. And before that, what is cognitive load? I think when they have to do too many things in order to decode a word, especially in a sentence, if you've got a child who is laboriously de- decoding every single word again and again and again, it's going to be a lot for them. In that case, I might pick a decodable book that has three words per page Hmm. or that doesn't have a ton of text on the page. Like there's a big difference between what I would have a young child or a child that is overloaded read versus a child who is in second grade that's struggling with sound structures. Yeah. There's, There's an amount of text on a page. The text size, I, from some of the research I have done, the text size, what they can see, the spacing that's done in between it can be overwhelming or not. Um, But yeah, as far as the cognitive load, if a child is decoding at a very slow speed, I would drop the word count. I would ensure that there are very few sight words that they encounter. And, um, And I might help them through some of the sounding out and make it more of a blending activity. And it's so it's so interesting um, to hear you say, Elise, about how you sort of do your, that, you know, we call it contingency planning, but really what it does mean is looking at where the student is at, what they are able to do, and to go a step lower if you need to and go a step higher if you need to. Yeah. They're really struggling. You're going down to um, the step before it or even before that. Whereas right. if they're really well, then you're going a step above um, them. When you we are thinking about decodable books specifically, what are some of the hierarchies <laughs> that you are thinking about and that you actually have thought about when creating these decodable books? Mm-hmm. And I love to discuss that, like from the word to the phrase, to sentences mm-hmm. and beyond. Um, yeah. I I really do try to make language not stilted because it not so much for me, like, oh, the child's going to have poor grammar. That's not what it is. If something is slightly stilted, I'll say to a child, oh, what's another way we could say that? Or how would you have said that? That's fine. It's just a another conversation I have as the professional that's working with a child or the conversation I have as a mom with my son. <laughs> but um, but because meaning can be hindered, mm-hmm. um, a lot of the kids that are struggling readers have often had less background knowledge and less um, to attach their mm-hmm. decoding to. 
And so if I've got really stilted language, it might hinder what they understand of the text. So I try not to do that. Although occasionally you really have to, and I really do want to stick to the decodability. Um, I try to make it so that everything has a complete story so that there's also that thought process. You want kids to want to turn the next page, but why couldn't he do that? I don't know, you know, and then I say, what do you think he's going to do? And then we have a conversation about, it. so how can I make something interesting so that there is room for conversations and room for making predictions about problem and solution, yada, yada, you know, but it has to be fun and it has to have a story that you then say, oh, that was fun. That was, you know, and so my stories are oftentimes about taking care of your friends or not giving up or something along those lines. Um, I, this is going to sound silly, but I have a bug on every page and every picture and he's always doing something funny. Um, my big secret about him is that he's my inner hungry kid. He's always thinking about food always. Yeah. <laughs> and the kids all catch on to it. They're like, oh, what's he thinking? about? Oh, it's donuts this time. You know, it's whatever it is, but I wanted them to want to be engaged with that book in a way. And I remembered from my youth, like Goldbug or in the critter books, there was like the little critters you had to look for something that continued along through all the books. And so that is a fun element. Um, although that doesn't have to do with decodability. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Engagement. Mm -hmm. Engagement. I mean, I, again, if in order to make math fun, we do math games. So if you're going to do a decodable book, I think that it should be engaging for kids. Yeah. Um, I do not do, and this has been a question I get a lot. I do not do nonfiction. Okay. I've got to think about that. Uh-oh, we're going to run out of time. All right. Okay. Does it, do we get off the call and then get back on? Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Hi. Um, what's that? No, no, that's okay. Um, You were talking about nonfiction. Sorry. <laughs> Is to you. Um, so I don't do nonfiction. And the reason being that I think that kids should be given really rich language and our kids have the capacity to use and understand words that are beautiful. So I don't do nonfiction. And it's because I think that the rich vocabulary and language that kids need aren't necessarily going to come from the words that they can actually read. Mm -hmm. Like my four-year-old or now he's five, but my five-year-old was saying words early on, like precipitation, or, you know, of course he might say them wrong, but there were a lot of words coming out of his mouth that there would be no chance that a kindergartner could sound out. And I think that they should have access to all of that vocabulary and language when we're giving them content knowledge. So if I'm talking about the water cycle, first of all, water would not be decodable to a kindergartner and cycle wouldn't be decodable. So what am I doing to get them to read those words? I'm reverting back to the old, well, what do you think this is? Or you know the first letter sound. So to me, those kinds of, that kind of knowledge comes from what a teacher reads to them or 
through them looking through picture books or asking questions and having conversations, it's not going to be from what they themselves can read. And it's inequitable when some kids can read higher than other kids, those kids are going to have access to more content if I am trying to have them read a decodable book because they can decode more. So to make sure all my kids are getting that knowledge, I don't want to rely on a a book that they can decode because a lot of them can't decode the language they need. Which probably is a fantastic segue into perhaps anybody <laughs> that's listening to this conversation going, well, fine, we'll get the students to read decodable books. Yeah. Understanding that these are controlled, understanding that they have a specific scope and sequence of um, sound spellings, um, all of that taken into consideration, they still need to be learning the rich words, mm -hmm. learning the content, building their knowledge around the world they are in. Um, mm -hmm. How do they sort of, how do they meet both ends? So decodable, yes, but then you have your rich language side. What happens there? I think that there's a lot of read alouds that need to happen in the younger grades. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of it comes from discussion and utilizing um, video and illustrations and ways to show things, hands-on experience. You know, we do um, science experiments and then we talk about it and we maybe draw it on the board and they draw a picture of what they just did. How do we engage kids to understand that content without requiring them to read it. Mm -hmm. I think that there's going to be, there's, there's going to be a conversation that happens with math eventually, because I know that my son who couldn't, who was struggling reading CBC words at the beginning of first grade, got math word problems home a lot. And I had a school ask me the other day, it was the second grade and I was training and they said, well, what about our math program? And I said, well, I think we have to be really cognizant of what we're asking our kids to read. Are they able to get what we want them to practice out of it? And I'm not here to change math or to rewrite a curriculum. It's not my, not my thing, but um, you know, if we want all kids to be able to access the same thing, we have to be careful about what text we're requiring them to read and, and how we're doing that. Cause if like you and I had talked it on, on earlier about this mixed messages. Mm. Here I am telling a child, I'm going to give you all the skills to read. You know, you're working so hard. You're doing such a great job. You can read. And then I'm putting them in situations where they can't read and I'm expecting them to do it. What message is that giving our kids? It's especially if the child is taking from that, oh, my teacher is, is thinking I'm failing. So we're we're setting them up either to guess or to fail. And, and both of those are not good options because we know how hard it is to undo the, the guessing, the quick, what do I do to figure this out? I should guess it. That's right. And that guessing based on what, based on, you know, if they, if they're an older student, then mm -hmm to go, okay, what's the strategy? But mm -hmm. when they're young, it's where, what are they using to help them? 
that's mm-hmm. yeah and that's sort of well, the older kids I think it's really going to be having teachers that are trained and knowledgeable in this so that they can be empathetic not even not even empathetic equitable to how their kids are learning if I've got high schoolers that are not learning something without making them feel terrible about it maybe I'm going to read it out loud maybe we're going to have a discussion based on it maybe I'm going to have them partner read but one person is reading this one Whatever it is that I'm going to do to ensure that without making that child feel badly for a skill that they haven't been taught Mm -hmm. or they haven't been secured in learning, how how am I going to help make it equitable? So that's what I think with this, when we're looking at text, it's like a whole reimagining of what text is for Mm -hmm. our students, any text. Um, The directions on homework, you know, are we going over it before they take it home? Because what if their parents can't read? Or what if their parents don't do their homework with them? Yeah. You know, maybe they've got two jobs or, or maybe they just aren't engaged. I mean, whatever it might be. Um, Yeah. Cause I've, I, I had a, there was a little boy in my son's class and his mom was young and she called me and she said, I'm worried about my son. I don't think he can read. And this was um, at the beginning of first grade. And I said, well, why don't you come over? Let's look at it. And she loves her boy just as much as I love mine. The love is is no different, Mm. but she was not equipped to help him. Mm. And at that point, the only thing I could think to say was they're failing your child. Your child isn't failing. You're not failing your son. He's being failed in his education because he's being given books that they have not taught him how to read. He's being required to do all of this work. And it it sounds nasty, but I don't mean it to be that way. It's just that this is what our job is, is to make sure our kids can access curriculum. And if we don't give them those skills, how do we expect them to do it? And then if if we're going to be equitable, we can't assume that all parents can do that with them. Mm. And it, it... we also have to think about the parents. It's not because they don't love their kids. That was how I was made to feel at one point was, well, you're not reading enough to him. Mm. I knew better, but I can only imagine another parent hearing that and being like, because I knew it wasn't because my kid wasn't getting read to enough. I was reading a ton. I was giving him the knowledge that he could attach to the mechanics they were supposed to be teaching him but they weren't teaching him the mechanics. So at that point, it's, it's not on the parent. And, and yeah, sorry, that was (laughs) frustration. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, that, that there is that assumption now that all parents are not reading to their children. There isn't enough time. And there is so, there is so much, um, you know, stigma attached to parenting these days and, and actually understanding what bias are we going with? What is our, you know, just like for any other topic, it might be a topic of skin color. It might be a topic of culture. It might, so many of those topics to really try to understand what do we believe? Um, what are we thinking about? And what sort of based on that, what, you know, is it an imposition? Is it a false um, statement? Or is it a generalized statement for that, um, you know, 
it's it, just, it becomes a very like I think it's a very systematic problem that's happened in education where when something goes wrong, we blame it elsewhere. Yeah. I'm not saying teachers do that and I'm not, you know, I'm not putting the blame there. Um, I'm just saying that we have to be accountable Mm. when they come to school, that is where they're going to learn how to read. We will hope, but hope doesn't teach things. We will hope (laughs) that parents are reading at home and singing and talking, you know, if they can't read, they're talking and they're singing and they're having experiences and all of those types of things. So that when we're teaching kids how to read, they have something to pull from. They have experiences or information to pull from, but we can't assume that. And Mm -hmm. so we need to make sure that when they come to school, that's where they're learning how to read. It's like assuming that homework is going to teach them that. Yes. Yeah. You know, I, when I get homework home, I want it to practice what he has learned in school Yeah, and, and be a further practice, especially the early years. And so if you're saying to me that my not reading a lot, and I did, but is what's causing him to not be a reader, then I have to wonder, well, then what's happening in the classroom, mm-hmm. you know? And I just think there need, there needs to be a change of of what we expect, what we assume as teachers is our role in all of this and, and how we're going to help our kids through that. Because it is where there's support, we're, we're supposed to make them feel safe and secure in this process. And, and I think that honestly, that's sometimes where decodable books come in is because I want to be setting my kids up to be successful. Yeah. I'm giving them the skills. I'm giving them an activity that has to do with those skills. I'm not requiring something else. Yeah. Um, Elise, are the, your, the decodable books that you've created, um, are they able to be uh, used at home? Are parents able to? How does that piece work? And it's a really intentional question because I'm thinking about the sounds how precise the sounds are and the process of joining those sounds to lift the word off the page. Um, How does a parent who is not trained or um, who is not provided with as much education about decodable books able to help their child? It's number one, going to be a little bit of a problem (laughs) unless teachers start supporting families to help at home Um, because it's just, again, and I go to math because it's an easy way to explain it. It's like when we say, oh, well, the parents don't know how we do this math. Mm. Well, parents don't always know how to help kids sound out words. So we need to show them that. We do get a lot of parents that use the books at home. And if you use it as a practice source versus you know, matching it to lessons that you're teaching and then applying for immediate practice for that lesson. I think you choose what your kids already know and that's what you go with. So CVC words, like we, we break our books down into, I have seven different sections. Mm -hmm. We start with, I am ready, which is minimal CVC words to a page, very minimal. And the font is much bigger it's much more friendly to a younger child or a child that's struggling to see, yeah. you know, to 
say each sound. And then we've got step one, that's CVC. Then we do blends and short vowels, then consonant digraphs and short vowels. And then we move into long vowels and then higher level phonics. And the higher level phonics, you know, people say, oh, well, you, you need to be done with the codables. I think of those more as being practice mm. for something that we need to use to mastery because you're allowing kids to be successful while practicing one other skill, mm -hmm. just like everything else we do in school and at home too, you know, like I want them to, um, practice something that they've been doing in school so that they get even better at it. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So I, I think for parents at home, it's understanding, do, can my child, do they know the basic sounds? you know, that the alphabet spells, um, and at the most basic level, then, then can they put those together? Can we add in one more thing? Can we add in one more thing? Can we add in one more thing? And whatever decodables you pick, you know, you follow that kind of scope and sequence, that idea. We're starting with CVC words, consonant, vowel, consonant. Then we add in one more thing. We add in one more thing walking up the steps, you know, the layered approach. Um, mm -hmm. I like that. No, thank you so much for that. Uh, Elise, we've covered a fair bit about <laughs> express readers. Has there been, as we do wrap up, has there been anything that I haven't asked you that you really want to shout out from the rooftops? Um, you know, let me, yeah, I think, I think that the, the the shouting out from the rooftops is that enough schools aren't using them yet. Okay. That there's a very large disconnect in education and in a child's journey through reading where they're learning the sound structures and not applying them again and again and again to the actual use. Mm. Like, what am what am I learning this for? Oh, so you can read. Mm. It sounds very simple, but yeah. I just, I hope, and I, I'm I'm feeling so much more hopeful recently as we watch school districts start to take this on. Mm. We always send out books, you know, someone will say, oh, can I see them? And I said, that's great. Even when people don't go with ours, I thank them. Thank you for looking at decodable books. Yeah. Whichever, you know, if there's any way we can support you. And I honestly mean that because- whether they're mine or somebody else's mm. kids need to have them. I told you this story about the little boy that said, you know, I, in second grade, he says, I, I can't read. Well, I know that for years he's been given books that he couldn't read. And so then he says to me, do you have an extra copy of duck and his mom? And I'm kind of, Oh, why do you want that? Well, because it was the first book I ever read you know, that he now has this ownership of the skills that he's been accumulating and just never been able to utilize the right way. Yeah. So I just think that's so important. Notable <laughs> books for schools. I really like that. Um, as, as a person that is a teacher, that is an author, that's a business person, entrepreneur. Yeah, um, yeah, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> what, what is the vision for express readers um the vision for express readers is 
a company one that I don't want to sell. That is something that I grow and get to do more with, whether that means giving more away yeah. as I can. Um, my mom, very knowledgeable woman told me, you know, at first I was saying, oh, well, I really want to just give this to all the schools. And she said, honey, when you make the company successful, you will be able to give more. Okay. Okay. I can do that. <laughs> um, right now I'm working with um, Trey Hadrick and the Lit Champs. Yeah. yeah. I envision that hopefully with a bit more success on our part, we can support them more too. The group of really innovative and, and charismatic and intelligent men who have this great idea about bringing it to the communities. Yeah. Um, yeah. And to be honest, I just want to keep writing them. I want my boys to be involved in it. I want it to be something that I'm proud of that my husband, that we're proud of that we grow because we know how, how kids feel when they can read a book. And I think as long as we can keep that as the core mission, we'll stay good. My husband always says, I know you don't want this to be, you know, like a monster company or anything like that. And I said, no, I just, I want to make sure that we're staying true to what we believe in. Um, because I've watched so many people sell out or, you know, go a certain direction in order to make profit. And yes, we need to make profit. This pays for my family and hopefully a bunch of other um, ventures that help communities. But it's also, you know, it's a teacher company. It's people who want to see what happens. So that's that's my hope. <laughs> that's wonderful. Thank you so much, Elise, for, yeah, taking the time, energy, effort into sharing your chapter about decodable books um i will be putting links uh in the show notes um so that people are able to access where express readers are my question is do you tend to ship worldwide is it an american um as of now yeah as of now there are um other countries do buy us through um exporters like we we're in Japan a bit, but mostly Canada and the United States. Yeah. Just because we're still on the smaller side. Yeah. Um, we do that. I do a a Facebook page called Reading for All, where I give away as much as I possibly can. I realized I had thousands of resources and they weren't all being used, and teachers are always looking for things. So that's worldwide, I guess. <laughs> Beautiful. No, that's fantastic. Um I think that's it. Uh, is there, if there's anything you want to say, um, you're more than welcome to. I know. I, I, I geeked out of it. I loved it. I love getting to talk about it. <laughs> Thank you so much. For everyone that will be listening, um, this conversation will be available on Human Chapters YouTube channel and Human Chapters podcasts, wherever that podcast platform is. <laughs> Spotify um yeah so please subscribe share the conversation with people share the um express readers links and let's get our children reading yes. and thank you thank you